Several Sundays ago, I asked you who was the first woman who cried in the Bible. And you know, the answer was Hagar, and the reason she was crying was because she thought her son was going to die. Well, now this morning, we ask this question, who is the first man who cried in the Bible? And the answer is Abraham. And the reason that he was crying is his wife, Sarah, did die. My old professor, Dwight Pentecost, lived to be 99 years old. And he was a widower for many, many years. And he said the hardest thing a man ever has to go through is the death of his wife. My mother died 18 years ago this month. And my dad said to me, Brian, you just can't understand what it's like. He said, unless you go through it, you cannot understand it. And this morning, as we are continuing our studies in the life of Abraham, we come to Genesis 23. And here we learn how believers face death. Now, you need to understand, this was very hard on Abraham. Very, very hard. He went through lots of things that he could have cried over. This is the first time the Bible says that he cried. But as we think about this, there's a wonderful promise for us in the Bible that tells us we have a great hope in the midst of the sorrow that we experience in this life. And this is what 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, Abraham beautifully illustrates both sides of this verse. He illustrates the grief side, but also the hope side. And so he shows us how believers face death. So let's begin with the grief side this morning. And we want to notice as we open up Genesis chapter 23 that death brings very painful earthly loss. And I want you to look with me in your Bibles at Genesis 23 and notice with me verses 1 and 2 as we open this episode, this very difficult and yet triumphant episode in the life of Abraham. And notice what it says. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, these verses that I've just read for us are an ancient obituary listing the main facts like we would see in any newspaper. So there's the total years of life here, there's the statement of death, there's the place where it happened, and there's the funeral service that followed. Now, there are a couple of things that are unusual and very significant that teach us some very hard truths about life. And here are those hard truths. Life's plans are not always fulfilled, even for the believer. And losses cause grief, 
and heartache. Did you know that Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose age is listed at her death? She was 127 years old, and we say, why is she the only one whose age is revealed? Well, it's her importance, isn't it? She's the grand woman of the Old Testament. That's why her age here is revealed. And we might think, you know, such an important person, such an important and significant believer, shouldn't she have it all? And yet, despite that fact that she's the most important woman in the Old Testament, in Israel's history, we read here, she died in Hebron in the land of Canaan. Now, you know what? All of us know that Hebron is in the land of Canaan. So why is that said here? That would be like me saying Marquette in Michigan. We all know that Marquette is in Michigan. So why is it said here that Hebron was in the land of Canaan? Well, if you look at the map for just a moment, you will notice Hebron is near a very significant place, Mamre. Mamre was the place where God gave to Abraham most of the promises that he gave him. So Sarah died near the place where the great promises of God had been given. And you know the promises. You'll have descendants like the stars of the sky. You'll possess the whole land. Sarah, kings are going to come from you. How many of those promises had been fulfilled by the time of her death? She had one child, Isaac. That was it. And then she died with almost everything unfulfilled. And then her death caused great grief and sorrow to her husband and family. Look again at the tears of this man. Abraham was the man of God. He was the man who loved God with all of his heart. He gave everything up to follow the Lord. I want to just say as I look at this, shouldn't the first tears in the Bible be of a non-believer who rejected God and his way? Shouldn't they be the ones who are crying first? Instead, the most dedicated believer on the face of the earth is the first one to cry. Brothers and sisters, if Abraham and Sarah experienced earthly loss, we can expect it too. No Christian will ever get through this life without tears, disappointment, and death unless Jesus comes first. In our previous church, we knew a dedicated young couple who were missionaries to Spain. 
They loved the Lord and had dedicated themselves to the mission field. They were unable to have children. And they decided that they would attempt to adopt a child from Eastern Europe. I, I believe they went to Ukraine. And so while they were on furlough near our church, they uh, set up a nursery in their home. We gave them our crib, which we no longer needed. They traveled with great expectation to the Ukraine. They were not able to find one healthy child that they believed they could raise on the mission field with all of its hardships. And they came back with empty arms. They dismantled their nursery, gave us their crib back. We had no words to say to them, what could we say? And then just a couple years later, that young wife got uterine cancer and died very quickly. It was a double whammy for her husband. And you want to say, Lord, these are your missionaries. Don't they deserve something better? But you see, the Christian life is often like this. There are unfulfilled plans, earthly loss, and death. And we know that's the reality. But now what I love about this chapter is it moves very quickly from this reality to the hope that we have as Christians. And so starting in verse 3 to the end of the chapter, as we see Abraham negotiate to buy a cave for a grave site for his wife, he teaches us this wonderful, hopeful lesson. Believers' hopes are an eternal life beyond the grave. And so I want you now to take your Bibles and start with me at verse 3 as we read the rest of the chapter. And we see this long negotiation process to buy this cave to bury Sarah in it. And as I read, I want you to hold on to your hats because this is quite a section. Let me read it. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me for Ephron, the son of Zoar that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field, for the full price let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. 
And I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout his whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Whoo! Now let me ask you this question. What should come next? Death? Mourning? Burial, right? Yet as we just read this, you notice that the burial does not come until verse 19. That's a long time to wait. Instead, we have these long, involved negotiations for a burial plot. How many of you got lost in the details? Sixteen verses between the report of the death and the burial. Something very critical is going on here. Now, all this deference, courtesy, flowery language, all of this bowing uh, and courtesying and all of that is typical of bargaining in the ancient Near East, even to this very day. But make no bones about it, Abraham is absolutely determined to buy this property. And Ephraim, he's determined to get the best price he can. What is Abraham doing? He is visually teaching us about our future. That's what he's doing. You see, it was customary in the ancient world to return to one's ancestral home for the burial. For Abraham, that would have been Mesopotamia. When my grandfather died in the 60s, he died in West Michigan. His funeral was held in Detroit, but his body was brought back to the UP, where he was buried next to my grandmother and my cousin. And that's the way it was in the ancient world. So when Abraham purchased this land, and he was determined, I'm going to buy it and own it, it was completely against custom. 
And he was saying three things by buying this cave and the field. This is now my ancestral home. There's no going back to Mesopotamia. One day, I'm going to possess the entire land. God will fulfill his promises to me. And death has taken my beloved wife, but we have a future beyond the grave. That's what he was teaching. What he was showing us is we have hope in the face of death as a believer. Now as we unpack for a few moments what Abraham teaches us, you might say, Pastor, this is taught over and over in the New Testament. We could go to a number of passages in our New Testament that teach these very things, but, but here we are in the patriarchal age in Genesis, learning the same things about our future hope. It is remarkable. Let's look at them, shall we? Number one. In death, we celebrate our future life, not simply our past life. Did you notice that three times in the chapter, burying place occurs? Verse 4, verse 9, and verse 20, the beginning, the middle, and the end. The word place means possession, and it is the same word that God used to promise the whole land of Canaan as an everlasting possession to Abraham in Genesis 17. So when Abraham brought, bought this site for Sarah, he was celebrating their future together in heaven. He was saying, I am going to possess this land, this small portion, because God has said, you will have it as an everlasting possession. Therefore, I purchased this small amount to celebrate the future life that Sarah and I will have. All of us know that the world now has a new type of funeral service. It's called a celebration of life, isn't it? And you see it very regularly in the newspaper where people, whether they're believers or not, are going to have a celebration of life. Here's the problem for the non-believer. All they're celebrating is their past life. That's it. But we are celebrating our past life, our present life in heaven, our future life to come when the body is raised again. That's what we're celebrating. 
And our funeral songs, they focus on heaven, on glory, on resurrection. We eulogize Jesus who has gone to prepare a place for us. You know what I think we ought to call Christian funerals? A celebration of Christ. A celebration of what he has done for us in the past. What he is doing for us now as we are in his presence in heaven and what he will do for us when he comes again and resurrects our body. We are celebrating far more than the past. We are celebrating all that Christ has accomplished for us. Notice the second thing that Abraham teaches. We lose only the temporary but we gain the eternal. In verse 4, Abraham said this, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Now those words meant some very clear things. There was no citizenship rights for that type of a person and no possession of the land. And so think about what Abraham is saying To the one that God has promised everything, he is saying, I have no authority and no permanence, but here's what Abraham knew. I'm purchasing this cave and the field as a burial place because I know this is only temporary. The Hittites have it all now, but I am going to inherit it forever. It's so interesting how The writer to the Hebrews picks up on this. And I love what he says in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. Notice what he says was the perspective of Abraham. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why did they live this way? For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And he knew, I've lost the temporary. I'm gaining the eternal. And then I want you to notice, thirdly, Abraham teaches us this, we gain more through death, not less. When the believer dies, it is an addition, not a subtraction. Now, did you ask yourself in verses 17 and 18, why all these precise, careful details? Did you ask yourself that question? Let me read verses 17 and 18 again for you and hold your breath again, all right? Here we go. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Why all this detail? You ready? Abraham really owned it. 
It was really His. But now, when did Sarah get her first piece of the land? At her death, right? Think about this. She got more in death than she ever owned in life. Death began her inheritance. Last month, I had my annual physical. And the nurse was going through the vital signs with me. And and as she did, I just happened to say to her, well, if I live as long as my dad... I've got 30 more years to live. And she said to me, well, that's a very long life. She said, no one lives forever. Did I see my opening or not? (laughs) I said, well, as a matter of fact, I am planning to live forever. In fact... I'm kind of looking forward to it. We get more at death than we ever had in life. And we are more alive at death than we ever were while we were alive. Death is not a subtraction. It's an addition. And then notice finally number four. We say to our loved ones who are in Christ, see you later, not goodbye. I was with both of my parents when they died. And this was so comforting to me. I knew they were going to glory as I bawled my eyes out like Abraham did. I knew I was saying, see you later. I was not saying goodbye. Now, did you notice that in the land of Canaan is repeated in verse 19? Did you notice that? Twice in this chapter, we are told Hebron is in the land of Canaan. And we want to just stop again and say, well, wait a minute, we know this. We get the point. It's like Marquette is in Michigan. This doesn't need to be said again. Why is it said? The promises are unfulfilled. But Abraham knows this. God cannot lie. Therefore, the promises must be fulfilled in the future. Sarah must rise again from this tomb to receive the promises of God. Abraham knows, I will see her again. If anyone ever asks you, does the Old Testament teach the resurrection of the body? You take him right here. Because Abraham bought this burial plot in faith. 
knowing that God cannot lie. He must fulfill his promises. All the promises to us are mostly unfulfilled. Therefore, God is planning to fulfill those promises someday in the future. Therefore, Sarah will rise again. I will rise again. And together we will experience the fulfillment of God's promises in heaven. As is so often the case, the New Testament in reflecting on the old gives us the exact point. And I want you to read that point with me as we conclude this message. And notice in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16, summarizing this whole chapter, what God says is the point. Would you join me? And let's read together. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has promised a city for them. What kind of people live in a heavenly city? Resurrected people. What's the point? For believers, the better the best is yet to come. And that's the hope that we rejoice in. Let's bow together, shall we, and thank the Lord. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, Do you have this assurance, this hope? This world is not all that it's cracked up to be. There are many sorrows, disappointments, and unfulfilled plans. And then at the end of it all is death. But for the believer in Christ, there's a wonderful assurance that we have a home in heaven. We have an inheritance that is secure. Even our body, which is laid aside in weakness, will be raised in glory 
and in power. And someday in a glorified soul and body, we'll live in the presence of Jesus in the home he's gone to prepare. And if you're not sure that you have that assurance, I invite you to turn to the Savior even now. To affirm to him that you know that you're a sinner and that you have no hope outside of his death and resurrection for you. That you believe who Jesus said he was, the God-man who came into this world to die on the cross, rise again, and take his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. You believe he is coming again someday. And right now, the best that you know how, you are repenting. You're turning from your own way and turning to him and placing your trust in him as Lord and Savior. You can do that right today and find the assurance of salvation and eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us and all that we have in you. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.